One is the uh, head basketball coach at UNCW back in the 90s for about nine years. Um, and he was a high school coach for many years before that. So, you know, we used to have a sign on our fireplace uh, that said, we interrupt this marriage for basketball season. So from a generation standpoint, I got to see my father be a high school coach and then go out to be a college coach. And I kind of did the reverse. I went from, uh, as soon as I graduated from UNCW, Cape Fear Community College was starting a program. And uh, our athletic director at UNCW at the time contacted me, asked me to be the first athletic director and head coach at Cape Fear. And uh, so I started the program at Cape Fear, uh, fresh out of college. Uh, did that for three years. It was wonderful being your own boss and kind of starting something from the ground up. Um, and I could not wait to work for somebody again. You learn that real quick uh, when you're when you're getting involved with the athletics and when you're in charge of all the decisions. And at that time, my dad was offered a job at University of Richmond, and I followed him to University of Richmond, and eventually DePaul University. So I got to coach uh, Division One for 12 years, um, both in the Atlantic 10 and then Big East when DePaul joined the Big East. So that was a uh, real fun to be kicked in the teeth nightly on, on national TV, but it was a great experience. Um, and then uh, I stopped doing that and was a regional assistant for the Memphis Grizzlies for a year. So that was the first time in coaching that I got to watch a game and not have any stake in it. I was just watching games, evaluating talent. Did not care who the winner and loser was. So that was an interesting experience. Um, and I really want to get back into coaching hands-on and. My wife and I sat down and talked. We had a young family, and, and she said, well, I said, if I want to do this, I want to do this at the purest level, which in my opinion was high school. And um, she was all for it, and I kind of explained to her what that meant in terms of uh, salary adjustments and those things, but she was all for it. And so for the past 11 years, I've been the head coach and assistant athletic director at South Brunswick High School, um, competing in educational athletics, and it's been wonderful. Uh, so kind of the full gamut of where coaching used to pay my mortgage to now being a teacher first and um, introducing kids into athletics, coaching in that way, it's, it's a different experience. But uh, yeah, so kind of growing up in it, and I, I take that word coach, uh, I still call my father coach for what it's worth, but I, when I talk to him, I, I say coach first. So it's a very important word in our household. Nice. Um, can you explain what it was like growing up a UNCW Tar Heel fan and what it means to be a Tar Heel fan, especially in your perspective, because I feel like generations have passed and you might not know who Coach Wainwright is. And if, if you've never heard of Coach Wainwright, who are, who are we talking about at, right. UNC, at UNCW? Right. So uh, back in the day at UNCW, um, you know, Wilmington in its core, when Wilmington was being established, you have people that retired to Wilmington. People moved to Wilmington back in the day for different reasons. Many of them wasn't for industry. We have some industry, but it is a uh, retirement community, right? When it's all said and done outside of the, the university itself. So you had Carolina graduates, you had state graduates, you got Duke graduates, you had all these people from other schools that came down and would come watch UNCW games. Uh, what my dad did in the 90s was establish a culture that made it uh, a team that the city really got behind. So he went out and he beat the Bushes, 
with people that had no stake in the program, did not graduate, had no kids in the program. But again, he wanted them to represent as the city's program. And he really established it as, as something that the town became kind of obsessive with. And really, really, um, really elevated the program from, you know, kind of just obscure to uh, kind of high major status. Obviously, it goes along with that more than anything. So he was the he was the head coach that was the first uh, postseason experience for the NIT, and then the first NCAA tournament experience uh, in 2000 when um, they were first team in school history to go through postseason. And then Brad Brunell, who was his assistant for many years, obviously took over when Dad left and now the head coach at Clemson. But for a period of time there, you would see got that culture that had to be cultivated to where now people maybe a little bit more familiar kind of years past with Coach Keats, you know, all that groundwork was already kind of laid for guys like that. So he really sold it as a program. Um, again, that the city can be behind in a lot, a lot of work off the court to establish that to be a priority. Nice. Uh, what, is, what is your coaching philosophy in, in a nutshell and – you know, what does a coaching philosophy mean to you? Um, to me, my coaching philosophy is is solely based on relationships. Um, you know, talent changes. Um, uh, leadership at universities and high school and places change. Uh, so there's always going to be a change in what the emphasis might be for people to focus on from a uh, these are going to be our goals for this year. Hopefully it comes back. You know, again, having done it in reverse for my father to where I worked both college and professional before coming to high school, uh, one thing I try to really establish with kids here in high school level is that, you know, because what we're asking them at our core is we're asking them to borrow them for a little bit. We're asking them to, to give and a tremendous amount of time without any promise of return on scholarships. Uh, there's not a, you know, we don't have a apparel package. We don't have things that are attractive other than opportunity and those, those glory days of this is probably the only time that we get a chance to do this in front of people. People are going to pay to watch you play. So what I try to do is really establish those relationships to get to know kids off the floor, to get involved with their families. Because when you're in a timeout, you're asking to get the buy-in. You're asking to get, get the stance and get that one stop that you need. Uh, that doesn't just happen. You've got to really invest in that kids. Um, you know, you've got to meet him at the end of class and walk him through his next period from time to time. You've got to know his girlfriend. You got to know whether or not mom and dad even let him in the house, um, you know, based on his background with his family. They made a really good point in the NBA Finals games the other night. Um, you know, sure, it's easy to coach the best players and those things. That's that's certainly not true. Managing talent is one of the hardest things to do, and getting people to buy in on that talent is all based on relationships. Nice. 
Um, what questions do y'all have? Do you have any questions? No. I'm going to ask my students if they have any questions for you. Not yet. Not yet. How do you think coaching has changed? You guess. How do you think coaching has changed since like, your father has coached? I heard the word change. So how do you think coaching has changed since your father was a coach? Uh, there's a, a certain, um, you know, again, my, I'm, a, I'm a product of divorce. My parents divorced when I was young in large part because of just a, a coaching philosophy at the time to where my mom didn't sign on for the, for the life of the coach's wife. And, and I'm glad they made that decision earlier rather than later. But so I would travel with my dad a lot during the summer and, you know, John Calipari, Rick Pitino, we go down a list of guys that were high school coaches that were grinders back then. You'd see them, you'd be at a camp together, you'd all go out to eat, and you would sit there and talk about basketball. You'd talk about kids that you had coached, and there was just a purity to it. Uh, now, it has gotten to a point to where it's uh, a little bit more competitive outside of the season. It's gotten a little bit to where um, you know, certainly the, the sanctity of the game with, with the FBI scandal uh, in, in recent years past to where it's viewed a different way now to where it had a much more pure form, I thought, growing up, just seeing, um, again, guys that, you know, there wasn't all these big coaching contracts and all those things back then, to where now it, it is, it's every bit a, a, a big business uh, enterprise. Um, even at UNCW's level, moving on up to the, to the higher levels of college basketball and the NBA. And that that blurred line of amateurism to where you know people in my high school wonder why we can't do things like Duke. Uh, you have to explain to them that you don't recruit in high school, you know, you have to play with the kids that move into your district each year. You know, there's that there's just that line that's been blurred to uh, as, as everything else, just the, the information age has given people more of a voice to comment, to have opinions, where you had time to develop. My dad had some losing seasons at UNCW too, overall, but he always had a high winning percentage of the comments. And he was allowed to do that because back then you were allowed to develop a team. You are no longer allowed to develop a team. You, you, you gotta get things done in a short period of time or they're gonna get rid of your tail and get someone else to do it. So, you know, that, that nature of building a culture is, is that window, I'm sorry, it's been short uh, with, with a lot of uh, pressure, pressure-based business. What can you learn from your biggest losses or what can you w- learn from losing? Uh, you, you certainly remember the losses more so than the wins. Um, you know, whether it's a specific play or a specific action that didn't work, whether it's a recruiting battle, uh, you know, or whether it's a kid that you had a lot vested in that you just said you could ever graduate, you could ever make it out of here. Maybe he didn't make it through the program. Maybe the outside forces just kind of pulled him down. You remember the quote-unquote losses a little bit more than uh, the wins. Uh, I've, I've been, you know, part of the team we won at Kansas, which was pretty cool. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Kansas, to see things like that. Um, being in the Big East to play in the Villanova's and Notre Dame's and UConn's and having a chance to go to all favors was was special. But um, yeah, the, the off the court losses I think are the, the things that you learn from because you understand that 
you can, you know, it translates to basketball. You can do everything right. You can be as prepared as you've ever been. Um, and, and uh, you know, when that ball goes up, it still comes down to to the execution part. Sometimes the other teams just execute better than you. So there's a certain helplessness that once you get them to that point that you don't have control over. We played Georgetown after they beat Duke one year, uh, two days after they beat Duke. And in the first half, they shot 81%. They were up 25 and a half. And I don't care if the Lakers were playing on that night, uh, they were going to be up 25 and a half. They were just, you know, sometimes it's not who you play, it's when you play them. We had, we had probably the best practice of the year the day before that practice. Didn't matter. The other team we played was feeling real good. And, and, you know, everything was going in and they just felt it that way. So, you know, your preparation is one thing. Your execution is really uh, in the minds of teenagers and, and young adults is a little uh, little disheartening sometimes because it's, it's out of your control. Nice. Yeah, you talk about being prepared and preparedness. How do you prepare your? How do you prepare for practices? How do you make a practices efficient? And how do you make sure you're saying the right cues at the right times to help the r- different players? You know, that's sure. a lot. You know the uh, the biggest asset in in coaching, hands down, is time. Uh, you have a limited amount of time to get better. Uh, whether it's it's sanctioned by the NCAA, whether at my level, you know, kids have been in school for seven hours and eaten maybe one meal and have to depend on a bus to get home, you better be real specific with your time. You don't want to have wasted reps or lost time. So, uh, you know, depending on what level you're at, you want to make sure you're getting better. Our, our philosophy is we want to be better today than we were yesterday. So, in whatever we are executing, whether it's we're going to get better against uh, zone presses today, um, we want to make sure that we're making steps towards that. So there's, 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 uh, we compartmentalize our practice to every part of that practice is probably going to have a reference to that, whether they know it or not. And then so it's it's part to whole. Or sometimes we teach you know whole to part when we break down into sections. But um, you know you have to get maximize reps and not, you know, here, we're all in COVID times. You've all had some time now to be, uh, some of you that were in, in spring last year to compare it to now, where spring last year turned into busy work almost as, as teachers were figuring out what was going online. You were getting stuff to do to justify uh, educational paychecks and those things, right? To where now it's a little bit more organized and direct, you know, as, as teachers have had more time to plan figure out this new normal. You don't ever want a practice to feel like busy work. You don't want a kid to dread practice. Uh, you want them, you know, in that practice getting uh, in, in a sense where they're just always feeling they're getting better. And then hopefully the goal of every coach is to translate practice to the games. What are some specific cues you use during, uh, let's just say, give me one thing you might have as a goal for the day. So you were talking about pressing. So describe kind of pressing and what cues you might use to help an offense or defense press. So one of our big cues, first pressure, is to not turn it over for points. Um, We feel we're a pretty good defensive team. So as we are working against, we have a couple teams in our league that press real well. Uh, Laney High School and uh, New Hanover High School, both in the Wilmington area there, are excellent pressing teams. 
we feel that if we can guard them at the half court level, we have a pretty good chance to be in the game. We feel if we turn it over directly for points, their talent is much better than ours, and, and that gap won't be big enough, won't be close enough for us to, to beat them. So one of the big cues we always say is do not turn it over for points. We could have dead ball turnovers. We could have travels. I don't care if they pivot throw it at a cheerleader out of bounds. As long as we get a chance to play defense. So we try not to turn it over for points. Um, and then the other big thing that we always say versus pressure is, um, is two-hand plays. So again, just a, a, common, a common cue, two-hand plays. You can't reach for a pass. You can't, uh, you can't um, uh, be, be soft in the sense that you're not running through a pass, putting your body between the defender and you doing everything you can to get that ball secure. So uh, two-hand plays versus press and don't turn it over for points are, are common cues that, that we just beat into them and, you know, in huddles even. Um, mentioning my father, my father was an assistant coach at Marquette, and one of their cues that they had, they actually had it to a science. They had that if they had paint touches, meaning if the ball went into the paint, or if they got two feet in the paint at any time, they had it to a science. If they hit a certain number of paint touches in a game, they had this percentage to win. And he's, he joked with me like, he's like, some of these kids can't hit. You know, I, I have no idea how they could even put this together. So in every timeout, they would have the board that they were writing their plays on, but another assistant coach would throw a board on the ground that would have, to that point, their total paint touches. Sorry. Their total paint touches. Okay. They were at their total paint touches. So, um, and he said what was amazing is those kids were so cued in to those paint touches. They knew it. And they bought into it. So just by visually showing them that number through a game, by backing it up with video later on in the game, uh, and attaching it to how many paint touches they got, equated to them winning. It was it became part of their culture. They, you know, they down if they won the paint, they won games. Okay. <clears throat> I'll let you get to that. I'm gonna see if they have any questions. What does he consider success? What does he consider success? All right. So our next question was what do you consider success? Uh, a success is, is, is doing what you practice. Uh, that success will not always be defined by winning and losing. You know, but um, I've been in games where you, two minutes in, you realize that you were outmatched, that what you had planned for uh, is not going to work. The other team is better at what they do than what you prepared against them, and you better have a you better have a, an account. You better have some confidence in your eyes and some some leadership and some belief in your team that hey, right. Sometimes it beats like that, boys. Now here's what we're going to do to try to readjust this. So just that you know, first is, is that preparation of we're going to practice this to do it into the game, and then. If you do that in a game at a high rate, and it still doesn't, you know, but your kids bought into that, to me that's a success. You know, as a coach, you're always going to live with your choices and should have ran that play or 
and I prepare my team to play. So having my team prepared to execute is by far the best success we could have. You can't make the free throws for them, you can't make the layup for them, but you can put them in the position to succeed, and that starts in practice. Okay. Um, now we're we're coming to a new new kind of time where uh, athletes are more diverse. Uh, we're coaching diverse athletes. Uh, they come from different races, different cultures, different preferences. Um, how has it changed in the past ten years as a coach, um, learning to seek to understand individuals who I who are different than you? and your other players that surround them, and how do you develop a positive team culture? Sure, um, you know, it starts with that word culture. Uh, it's not a t-shirt, it's not a, uh, a bumper sticker for your fans to use. Your culture has to be represented in practice daily. Uh, I think athletics has had a head start on that for many years with uh, the ability to bring in people from, from different backgrounds, cultures, and races to uh, get them to to focus on, on one goal and you know whether it be uh, remember the Titans uh, you know whether it be a Disney movie or whether it be real life you know sports certainly has that head start to do it uh, but I think it's important in that same model that we're not just doing it for sport that in those moments too you're you're trying to create opportunities for kids to. Uh, develop friendships and maybe open up to things that they may not have been um, exposed to from their backgrounds. So it's, you know, that's that's where that culture work comes in. It's not just, hey, let's look the other way on cultural issues and, and let's not understand anything about each other because all that matters is winning. No, it's, it's hey, let's, let's do everything we can to be, you know, my brother's keeper next to me, to be the definition of a teammate, which means there's going to be some things about your teammates you don't understand that you should, that you should want to understand, and uh, some things that uh, develop over the course of time that maybe change who they are. And I, and I think, um, you know, whether it's on the floor practicing, whether it's, it's get-togethers as teams, um, at your house, household get-togethers, traveling is a big part of, of culture in, in, in many sports because you're just together for so long. How you develop your, your locker room, how you design your seating arrangements, all these things, you know, similar to even in high school, I just left a class to where if I let my, you know, if I let my students pick their teams in a certain sport, they're always going to pick the best players first. You, know, you don't let them do those things. And you have to have a culture that, that, that makes them uncomfortable without putting them on the spot, exposing them as uncomfortable. So, you know, just those, those decisions that are made daily behind closed doors um, that kids don't always realize. You know, Mark Byington, who's a head coach now, used to joke that he thought my dad was, you know, that dad, uh, he always said, we're going to be the toughest SOBs, we're going to do this, we'll play anybody. And then he became a head coach, and he realized the reason we were playing anybody is because we had to make a certain amount of money for scholarship money at UNCW. He said, I used to really believe your dad, but that was the point. He bought into that culture of, you know, whatever coach wants, whatever wall he wants to run through. And, and sports has that unique position of making kids buy in uh, and, and kind of look look to open up a little bit to, to other things that they are not exposed to generally. Nice. 
Uh, you know, we talk about with our students and with our athletes uh, character and what it means to you as an individual. How do you emulate that as a person? And then how do you help athletes who are struggling with that transformation of being more caring, being more respectful, being more responsible? How do you get those individuals to change? And can you mark their progress as a coach? Or is it something that you just hope appears? I, I think it's no different than if a kid can't dribble with his left hand, how are you going to get him to dribble with his left hand? Now, whether or not you ever accomplish that, whether or not the kid does it one time, the goal is to get to that one time. The goal is to have the progress, the work, to develop a skill, to then have the unique ability that were, to where that skill is going to be used in real life, and in this case, in his sport. And then again, as we're talking about culture and cultural awareness, you know, again, that some of these character building things in sports certainly have the ability to take the individual and the confidence level outside of sport. Uh, one of the things I find unique in education right now in, in, in high school in North Carolina is there are positions in upper management here in school that are called now coaches. It could be a curriculum coach. They can be a, uh, a, uh, for a, um, they have uh, coaches that come around, science has a lead coach for the county that works with all the science departments. You know, so this word coach that, you know, I've also had conversations 10 years ago with a social studies teacher who said, well, we don't think highly of coaches. And that, you know, so I, I appreciate that over time here, that word coaching has come to mean many things to where it's not just you know, an old school guy in bike shorts and his, and his, you know, socks pulled up to his knees and a whistle in gym class rolling out the basketball as much as it is someone that is really teaching uh, basic tools of life to kids in real life situations. And, and maybe the greatest thing, the ability to succeed and fail in front of people. You know, like if you had 10,000 people watching your class right now, they were judging every movement you made and every decision you made. Um, you know that's a real, that's a, that's a, it takes a real strong backbone for these kids to perform on a high level in front of people, and then to have that, that performance scrutinized, and sometimes you know they're put up on the pedestal and they're, they're uh, applauded for. But you know it's just tremendous highs and tremendous lows. So that culture that you teach kids has to carry them through those highs and lows because they are going to be knocked down certainly more than they've been picked up and that is a real life principle that will help them uh, when they leave the program. Yeah, I like to think about coaches, leaders, and teachers as, you know, all in the same category. But, you know, coaches, they go through so many ups and downs, wins and losses, where, you know, teachers, wins and losses might be, you know, A's, B's, C's, and D's. And leaders might be, you know, you know, who you can actually inspire as a person and who wants to actually follow you and then trying to achieve all three of those things as a leader, teacher, or coach. Um, what, is, what is one thing you think helps you motivate your athletes that has maybe changed throughout the years? Did you, as a young coach, did you try to motivate them through maybe external means and then you went into internal means or has it always been this intrinsic approach as far as trying to motivate people like trying to f spark something inside of them well, how do you how do you motivate athletes 
now compared to how you used to motivate athletes? Yeah, uh, I think when I was younger, I certainly tried to represent it more through actions, and that your actions would carry, uh, would motivate the others. So let my work ethic certainly demonstrate and speak for itself. If we were doing a walkthrough or a scout report on Georgetown, I made sure that my team knew that I was as prepared for Georgetown as they were, that I had watched every game tape, that I had every scenario prepared for them to walk through and, and, and you know, to not be caught for, by surprise. So then, you know, kind of build trust that way that, you know, I'm gonna do my job, here's your job. Your job is to, to execute, perform, my job is to prepare. So I think in professional and semi-professional college uh, level, it is, you know, you better be prepared. In high school, that preparation is a little bit more to where, um, you know, there's just, you know, I have a Brunswick County taxi, I call it, because obviously, you know, not all my kids drive, so I gotta take kids to and from practice on summer days. I gotta, I gotta go pick them up. Um, I have to communicate 10 times as much as I had to with kids that were the upper 1% that I coached, and now when you're coaching, you know, a much more average population, you know, your communication is constant. Um, so I mean, there's all kinds of technology that I use with, whether it's sharing a video here, whether it's uh, sharing quotes that you read, whether it's just, you know, it's, it's building all of those trust different ways as opposed to just being your job. Because they won't always identify strengths. Uh, and I think that's really true of kids. Kids don't always know things that will help them, but they do recognize weakness. If you come off as fake, if you come off as not being prepared, if you are not um, if you are not representing what you are preaching, those kids will recognize that you are fake and they will they will immediately tune out. So, you know, it's harder to get them to understand the things that can help them because they're looking for weakness. They're looking for that chink in the armor on you. So, you know, just never giving them that opportunity and then making sure, um, you know, they have, they have that trust in you to say, hey, we're gonna spend six months with this guy, you know, and, and, and maybe not go to work on a summer day because I'd rather go play that summer league game. You know, there's a lot of trust that has to be built up. Okay. Um, we're going to be getting into kind of the conditioning aspect of sport. And I know some of some some uh, athletic performance coaches like to say that the conditioning happens on the court. The strength happens in the, in, the, in the weight room, where you don't want to add the conditioning into the weight room because the conditioning happens on the court. What's your view of that? How do you condition your athletes? Do you believe that's the case? You condition them on the court, you strengthen them in the weight room, or do you believe that they still need conditioning outside of the court if they're not on the court? I think it is it is very much seasonal. I think there is a list that they place during the season and um, flexibility and yoga sessions. Let me, let me tell you, here's what I decided with our team this year. Maybe this will make the most sense. So I have not been with my team since March 13th of last year. Wow. So here they are all coming back in an AB format in Brunswick County. For those of you that means that most of my kids are in school in person two days a week. So do they have access to a weight room? Do they have access to facilities that can really improve their conditioning? Absolutely not. So how do we take this team for this year 
right? January, February schedule, where we hope happens. We have a, we have a short schedule that the High School Training Association put together for us. So how do we get them prepared? I had a meeting with my staff. I think the worst thing that we can do right now would be to get in the weight room and say, get strong. Because you don't get stronger for a season in the season. We would absolutely blow these guys out. They would have, uh, they would have uh, high impact injuries and wear and tear that are just gonna not help them at all. We have solely stressed that we're gonna start a lot of flexibility. We're gonna work a lot on just certain dynamic movements that will be repeated often in a short amount of time that we're going to have them this year. And then things like yoga and then some of the, uh, we, have, we have a pretty cool wrestling room here that has all these mats with technology. And we've kind of started introducing yoga over the past few years to where things are just specific to how can they not be injured? And I think that's a different philosophy. Not how can they get stronger? How can they sustain my sport for two months and they go play football for two months and they go play baseball if you have multi-sport athletes at high school level. So, you know, that's that's our philosophy for this year. The traditional year, it would be you get stronger in the weight room in spring and summer. Um, and, and then in the fall, you're conditioned a little bit more. You start rising your conditioning towards carrying you through a season. And then in season, we have maintenance lifts and our conditioning took place on the court, right? So there's a bit more of an ebb and flow in a traditional year, but you know, I don't know any time we'll be able to use that word again anytime soon. So you better be creative in things that, that understand that your kids have been sitting on your tail for months, and, and now they're just going to come in stone cold. I don't care if they're all you know, oh, the young kids recover. That's that's not how it works. You got to have that body prepared, and we're going to focus a lot on on, um, on those movements that will be repeated solely those movements. Nice, yeah, and I, and I think training really should focus on the mitigation of injury. Training should be the mitigation. Training should be um, a, not a barrier to sport. And so you're thinking more tissue-specific training for sport as opposed to um, sport-specific training for sport, which would be, you know, you know, let's do power, let's do this, let's do that. So you're trying to get the athlete out of the way of themselves to let them do what they're supposed to do on the court without the focus on the strength currently. And then in the traditional season, you have those options of strength because you're in the off season. You, gotta, you have nothing really else to do. You don't want to overdo it on the court. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, I taught yoga and I teach the functional range conditioning. So if you ever want to do a live session with your players, some type of mobility session, uh, and I got some good videos for you as well that would be really good for your players. Maybe we can uh, talk, right. about, talk, right. talk about that in a little bit. But um, how much uh, time do you have left? I'm good. I have, I have a two-hour planning. So okay. What uh, do you have? Uh, considering all aspects of, like, the game, like, uh, considering, like, parents and families, the game itself, the players, what level do you believe is most challenging, or what was most challenging for you? I heard, I heard the first part about all aspects, parents, what, families, and What's the most challenging um, uh, level of coaching? Um, again, the focus has changed from level to level. For instance, at UNCW, being a part of that, then, 
and building the culture, the focus was growing to where uh, I remember standing next to my father when they lost to Indiana the second round of the NCAA tournament. Indiana went on to lose the championship game to Duke Day. And he had just beaten USC, who was a 14 seed, or uh, it was a 3 seed. USC was a 14 seed. And I remember standing next to my dad, and the guy came up pissed off that they didn't meet at the end. And I remember saying, oh boy, things have changed here at UNCW. So seeing that culture shift of developing something to now we expect to win every game was interesting to see. So then going from that level to both you know, mid-major and high-major, but uh, in the Atlantic 10 Big East basketball, the demands are, are just different. It's There's recruiting battles, and then there's game battles. They've become two different wars. Uh, and, you know, they they pay for schools, they pay for a lot of things in the athletic department. So it is, you know, my dad had this quote that said, well, we don't care if you lose. And dad would always say back to them, well, well you care if I win. So, or, 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 I'm sorry, I said that in reverse. He said, we don't, we don't care if you win, but dad would always come back and say, well, you care if I lose. So just that, that temperament of winning versus losing at the higher levels is, is demanding. Uh, at this level, um, like I said, it's become blurred, but if you're yourself, I try to go home regret-free. I try to make decisions. I don't do it for the people that maybe have those opinions. I do it for those kids in the huddle. I do it for those kids in the locker room, and I do it for my family to represent my family to where when I go home, I make sure that, you know, I suspended my best player two years ago for four games, and he was the preseason player of the year. I suspended him for four games because I thought he was being a bad teammate. I didn't have to hold a press conference. I didn't have to tell people. I brought his, his grandfather in. I told him what I was doing. His grandfather looked me in the eye and said, thanks for telling me. I don't know if they liked it or agreed with it, but they understood that I got to make those decisions because it's kind of my program. Now, there's a difference between walking around with an ego in your program and, and making sure you're transparent in your program. So the one thing those upper levels taught me coming into this level was to have a level of transparency to where your expectations are understood, your expectations are visible for everyone, all of the stakeholders to see, and uh, you know, it wasn't just a battle of Coach Wainwright versus this young man. It was, you know, it was there for everyone to see. To where me reprimanding that young man made sure that I didn't lose the other 12 kids in the locker room. If I would have not reprimanded him, I would have lost his 12 teammates. They would have never looked at me the same if I didn't hold him accountable. So, you know, making those decisions at this level is easier than other levels. So. Um, you know, but I, I think my father and I will tell you it got a little bit harder to be yourself as the levels got higher, but that's probably the one regret. If we had a regret from some of those positions was there's a couple times there where we just weren't ourselves. So, you know, as I got back into it, this I said I'm always going to be myself and make sure that that's, you know, if they fire me because I don't win games, that's one thing. They're not going to fire me because my program is not represented the right way. Okay. Uh, did you have any teams that really stand out that you always remember, like that you're fond of, like any favorite? Like as a coach or yeah, as a coach. Do you have any teams that stick out to you that you've coached 
that spark like a like a really positive memory that in one particular oh, yeah. particular year? Yeah. My dad was an assistant coach at Wake Forest for nine years. Um, and four of those years were really hapless, pitiful years with Bob Stagg. And then Dave Odom became the head coach and he retained my father from a previous relationship. So then my dad got to be a part of the transformation at Wake Forest. And, um, you know, Tim Duncan and Randall Childress and all these names of names uh, in, in basketball. And to be on the sidelines, Coach Odom let me sit. I sat at a Gatorade cooler at the end of the bench. And, you know, to look up and there's Dean Smith and Jim Belvano and, and, and uh, you know, watching games with Len Bias and, and just these, you know, the, the angles of, of ACC basketball and your fingertips as a young kid was pretty cool. And I remember the moment um, where I decided I wanted to get into coaching was uh, I was sitting in a, in a film room with my father and Coach Larry Davis, who was an assistant at Wake Forest, and they were watching like a little 8 by 8 bus TV that had an attached VCR to it. I mean, you couldn't even see anything on the screen compared to the, the giant screens we have now. But they were watching it, and they just kept rewinding this one clip. They kept rewinding this one clip. The clip was of a player at NC State named Tom Gugliotta. And they were they were sitting there watching. Tom Gugliotta only scored when he drove to his right hand. So they said in the scouting report, hey, we're going to make this guy go left. He cannot score going left. And I remember hearing that going, that's insane. But I remember as a young man watching that and transpired the game and going, holy crap, this guy can't go left. Like, it was just so cool to me that they watched it, they did it, and I thought that was just the coolest thing to watch and to try to take away something that somebody did well so you could succeed is when I kind of turned on and I said, I want to be a coach, I want to do this, that sounds cool to me. Uh, so I'm glad the technology's improved to where fast forwarding and rewinding's gotten easier and more uh, affordable, especially at the level I'm at now. But it's, uh, it's pretty cool to, to watch uh, the preparation that goes into a game and see it come to, when it all works, it's, it's pretty fun to see. Now, how much do you pay attention and focus on your athletes' weaknesses so that you can turn them into strengths? And do you have specific cues for each athlete to help them get better at their weaknesses? Or is that something that isn't on your time calendar? It is. Um, however, and I think in high school, the thing that is really different, again, without the ability to recruit. So in college, you recruit strengths. If you have a weakness, you go out and you recruit that strength. If you, have, uh, if you don't have a lot of size on your team, you go recruit size. If you have poor guard play, you go recruit better guards. Um, in high school, without that ability to recruit, you have to you have to pick weaknesses that you're okay with and try to try to make them work to another person's strengths if that makes sense. So so on a, on a really good team we had here two years ago, you know we had one kid that could not score to save his life, but was an excellent defender, and on that team was a great role player and it was what we needed because we had three guys on that that team that could really score the ball. So his weakness of not scoring, uh, you know, if, 
if he was our sole person and we had to go to, that weakness would have been exposed. But the fact that he was a non-scorer and was able to be a role player really fit in well with those three guys that needed the ball to score. So his attributes, you know, might not stand out on the stat sheet, but he got those guys open. He rebounded, he defended, and he led. So, you know, we're able to kind of find guys much more at this level that have weaknesses that you can pair them with other people where their weaknesses maybe aren't as evident um, or where the other person's strengths pick up for their weaknesses. So uh, at this level, it's about finding, you know, the, the, that, that core group of kids that plays well together as opposed to an individual that does something well. Do you feel like sometimes you're like a mechanic and uh, your team's an engine and you're trying to fix each part to make each part make the engine better and then if everyone does their own job independently everything works a little bit better? Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. You know, and, and, and sometimes you get a little too uh, focused on your, your engine. You stare at your car too long there. So sometimes you think your weaknesses are greater than everybody else's. Sometimes you think your team can't do this. And then you kind of get outside your bubble a little bit and you talk to another coach and he starts telling you about the problems he's having and you remember that everybody's got problems, you know? Or you go test drive that car and go, oh wow, there, there's other cars out here that maybe aren't that much better than, than the car I have right now. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta remain focused but not so hyper-focused that you don't recognize that the most important thing is that you are evolving, that you are that you are getting good at those things that you set out to get good at, as opposed to, it's real easy to be negative in coaching. It's real easy to say, oh, that kid stinks. Oh, we can't do this. And those things just, you know, those don't serve any purpose. Those, you could, you could have a bad week uh, or a bad day, but you can't have a bad week. And a bad week in coaching means back-to-back -back losses. It means you lose on Tuesday and Friday, as opposed to, you don't have a good game Tuesday, you better make sure you turn it around and put, you know, you're ready to play your best on Friday. Uh, you know, and hopefully that means you're in a position to win. If you're just negative, boy, it stacks up real quick. Okay. Any other questions? Um, what's been like the hardest thing to overcome with COVID? Oh, what's what? been like the hardest thing to overcome with COVID this year? Um, at this level access to to your student athletes um you know when you're uh when you're a state-funded organization you know i, I kind of got to follow rules that are you know for instance i can't just bring kids into the building before the school allows kids into the building you know um or, you know so it, it's it's one of those things to where you have to wait for everything to play out and you can't get ahead of it no matter how prepared you are so just representing that patience and that, you know, making sure I'm a, a kind of a, a soldier in the army as opposed to a person out here trying to form opinions and, you know, that I'm following what's been set forth by our county leadership uh, and letting it play out to where when I do get access and when I was granted that access, we've been working out now for two weeks, that you maximize that time. So just being ready and being patient uh, and, and keeping the kids engaged on a social level. And look, there's been great conversations we've been able to have, obviously. I have you know, a lot of minority kids on my team, and, 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 and a 
as some of the, the problems were unfolding across the country for minorities, we were able to have some discussions over the phone and, and things like that to just, you know, questions and answers. Uh, as things were going on with COVID, you know, we we're, were able to coach, you know, you know, my family doesn't do this or they do do this. And, you know, making sure that I'm aware of even what one kid's beliefs are coming into the locker room and not being blindsided. So, you know, and COVID, when you say, well, you know, COVID, to me, that's also the BLM movement. To me, that's also just a divisive nation altogether with what we have politically. So you have all those elements coming back into your locker room right now, and your locker room is your home, is your is your is your sanctum to where that you know as we said that that team has to has to buy in and believe in each other. So trying to keep uh, myself informed of what each kid's mindset is with that, to not be blindsided by things, or 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 just making sure I'm as prepared as I can to serve my kids to. Know, in a shortened season for some of these seniors to have 14 games as opposed to 20, 25, 26 games in a playoff to make sure uh, that I don't cheat that moment for them. You know, I don't really care my record. I, I want to make sure if this is the last hoorah for some of them that I'm as prepared as I am to, to service them. So, you know, just making sure I'm, in, I'm involved in their lives going into this uh, and then waking it up. It's been a long way. When are games supposed to start for you? Right now on calendar, uh, we have January games. Uh, second, first week of uh, January, right outside of, uh, of New Year's. Um, and that's on paper. You know, there's still some some things that have to, we have to be in phase three as a state. Um, and then our high school athletic association, who is our governing body, is it has their rules, and then our local LEAs are certainly going to have a say so in what's allowed. I'm not a fan of playing without fans, and you know, in my opinion, if we can't have fans there at high school athletics, I don't think we should play. I don't think that's right, um, and if that means not having sports, to me, that means not having sports. This isn't the NBA. This isn't a NHL in a bubble, which you know. Uh, I know you're a big hockey guy. I love hockey. Watching playoff hockey without the fans this year was one of the hardest things I've had to watch. That's that's yeah. not playoff hockey. Yeah, I mean it wasn't. Ex- what, it, what an advantage for some of these teams to play playoff basketball without fans. You know, and and that's the thing. Of course, you know we have bands, we have cheerleaders, we have dance teams, we have all these stakeholders. Where I just hope that they all get to be a part of our season. Otherwise, to me, it's not really Yeah, because it's not about the athlete. It's, it's about the culture of the community that yeah. is the sport. That's why there's a sport. You know, that's why sport was created as a, as a moment to celebrate in a formal fashion with an audience. It was, ne- there was ne- when you're thinking about Rome and Spartans, they didn't do those with empty stadiums. And that, that was a reason why they didn't do that in empty stadiums was because it, it wouldn't be called sport. Right. And I understand those other sports had a, had a check to cash. You know, we don't have that opportunity. Our opportunity is the kids' opportunity. It's not to make money. Um, these things cost money, don't get me wrong. But, you know, if, if uh, I hope that we find a way to do it safely to where everyone gets a chance to, to have that opportunity before they do it. Okay. Any other questions? I have one question. Sure. Uh, 
So as you were coming out of college, you know, you took the job at Cape Fear, correct? That was your first yes. job. And you moved on and worked with your dad at different levels. What is one thing that you would tell some somebody that's just coming out of college that wants to be a college basketball coach? Um, or, or a basketball coach? No, 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 that's, that's a good question. Uh, you realize real quick that you were a dime a dozen uh, in, in college coaching. I think I, I was really good at my job. I did every scouting report. I was as prepared as I could be. I used technology. I had back then everything that we could use uh, to, to improve the student athlete's experience. I made sure I was able to use. Um, that didn't make me unique. There was many guys like that that could do that same thing and given the opportunity would do that. So, you know, what, what makes me unique in college basketball solely, for instance, you know, my father, you know, hired me, right? So, with coaching, it is who you know to get the job. Now, it might be you know a kid who's the best player who happens to be on your AAU team. So, it might not just be who you know. There's a lot of things that go on that, that don't really make sense. The right person doesn't always get the job. You know, it is it is very much a business, and that business is based on performance. But I think uh, my my biggest, you know, what I was happy with, and still I'm happy with, that, I think I mentioned this, is when you are able to be yourself, when you are when you're doing the things that you are good at, whether or not someone else thinks that's you know your best or that's what they would do means nothing. Just that ability to go home and kind of feel complete that you did your best today. Is the only advice I would give. If you try being someone else, if you try saying I'm going to be a recruiter like this guy, or I'm going to, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. Your your genuineness is what is rewarded uh, ultimately in sports. Uh, my dad is 75 years old. Uh, he just he's not working this year because of COVID. He's 75. He was an assistant coach in Tulsa for the past two years. Before that, he was an assistant coach in Marquette. Before that, he was the assistant coach at Fresno State for two years. So as an older, experienced head coach, he loves coaching so much, he wanted to go back and just do coaching. He didn't want to do the booster club events, the alumni events, all of it. He just wanted to work, he wanted to be himself, and he had a lot to give, and he was employable, uh, and still is employable if we ever get out of his dumb long time. So, you know, and, and the reason he is that, he got those opportunities because he's just a genuine dude, and that is, you know, the genuineness is what is reflected both for the kids that you coach and the people that employ you. Nice. Thank you. And I like to tell people that are, you know, obviously about to get a, go into their first career is that there's a thousand people that are trying to do the same thing as you, and there's probably a thousand people that are already doing it, and those people that are trying to do it might be trying harder than you. So you have to take that in consideration that it's just not you trying to get what you want. There's a lot of people that want what you want. You're not the only one on this planet and that there's other people that are just more talented and just know the right people who, who are related to the right person. So you might have to develop more relationships that you're not used to or go out of your comfort zone because if, if your father never did that, you may not have had that opportunity. And, and maybe if you didn't use that opportunity to your advantage, you wouldn't be as successful as you are today. You could have easily just 
you know, not worked as hard or you could have just said, oh, I, I have it easy, but you've obviously had to develop yourself even on top of that. So I guess as a, a new coach, how do you go into a situation where you kind of don't know what to do and you kind of just laying the groundwork, you get the practice, nothing's really working for you? Oh. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I got you. Okay, so you're a new coach, you're in a new situation, and you're planning practice, and the plan doesn't work, you're kind of adapting, you're kind of going by the seat of your pants. What's the first thing you can recommend for someone that's doing something, that feels that way, that feels kind of overwhelmed, that's a new coach? How, what would you say to them? Um, kind of just along the lines that we were just talking, that balance of, of being hungry, and humble at the same time. Uh, you know, you're going to want to do everything right. You're going to want to um, uh, be as prepared as you can, but you got to be a little humble, knowing that, that you are not the first one to to do this. Your way of doing a two-three zone is probably not unique. However, it's it's your way, and make it your way. But when you uh, you know, what's great about coaching in that community. You guys remember earlier on I talked about sitting at a table and just watching coaches be coaches and talk and diagram on napkins. Uh, it is very much a community and there's still a large part of that community that loves uh, talking to other guys and, and, and helping them figure out. And today alone, we're not in our season. Today I've talked to two guys this morning about some things that they're planning on doing for workouts and just bouncing ideas off. What do you think about this? With my staff, as I mentioned, you know, I, I, I had a conversation about what we're going to do for conditioning, lifting weights. You have to realize that if you think you're sitting there figuring it all out by yourself, you're probably not going to be very good. If you sit there thinking that you have it all figured out, you definitely won't be very good. So, overwhelmed is a good place to be. Uh, but, but just like anything else, reaching out to those people that, that are going to help you. Uh, kind of navigate and, and, and focus it and break it down to just maybe one or two things as opposed to trying to re redo the wheel all at once is going to help you uh, get better that day, which again at this level is our goal. We're going to get better today. That might not mean, you know, like, hey, not, you know, like hey, I ain't fun to look at you. I can get two more questions. I get better a little bit each day to where I'm around as long as I can to, for, for those guys. So just really, you know, staying, staying hungry but remaining humble uh, will, will carry all a lot, Coach. And my last two questions are, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And uh, we'll start with that question. Um, I'm in the last semester right now, or second to last semester. I'm, uh, I have my admin degree at the end of the semester. I like options. I don't know if I'll be a high school principal or if I enjoy being a high school principal, um, but I think having options is good. I am dual certified. Uh, I'm CTE in business education, and then I'm certified as a health education PE teacher for K through 12. Gives me options, especially in COVID times. If, if I had to go teach another subject, I can. Um, 
and, and you know, just having those options. My wife owns two businesses. Um, everybody, you know, some people say you're Jerry Wainwright's son. I'm, I'm Jessica Wainwright's husband, is what I am. Believe me, I'm, uh, I, I think I know how to recruit. I picked me a superstar. She's unbelievable, and her businesses are doing well. And and, and that certainly afforded me some more options to to do things that I enjoy, like coaching and, and, and uh, trying to be a lifelong learner in education. So. I see myself still involved in education, uh, whether that's at the administration level or still being a, a, um, an athletic administrator, an AD, and, and a coach. Um, I don't think I'd be far from that, that circle. So you see yourself as a uh, coach in the next 10, 20 years? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, at what level? I don't know. I don't know if I want to be a head coach in 10 or 20 years. Uh, can I? Do I think I'd be good sitting on the sideline, helping out one of my friends, and just maybe giving some insight? Yeah. Uh, could I be a um, um, someone who just kind of travels around some of their practices and, and evaluates? I think so. I think I think I'll be involved with coaching. I don't see myself being a head coach in 10 or 20 years. No, I don't. I think that might time me out. Boston Celtics call you up. They need a head coach. Yeah. <laughs> well, kid I coach at Richmond is one of the assistant coaches there. Um, two kids. And then our film coordinator at Nepal is another assistant coach there. So I actually got to follow that program pretty closely. Um, yeah, that would uh, – Would that change things? Cool. Would that change your perspective a little? Would you move into that area if it, if it was a big-time decision? You know, I've never – I've always looked at the opportunities I've had as I'm glad I got the chance to do them, not I wish I was still doing them. Right. Um, there is a lot to be said for running your own program and how you want to run it and, uh, and being around good people. That's really my only two job requirements right now. I want to be around good people. I'm on my fifth principal since I've been here, I'm on my second athletic director since I've been here. And I'm lucky that the most of them. Well, that's great to hear, and we're, we're happy for you, and we want to thank you for coming on today. Um, we'll be in touch about uh, some um, mobility strength stuff that we can work on with your players uh, as they thank you for this podcast, and um, uh, we'll see you, and good luck uh, in January. I appreciate it. You got my email. If somebody has questions or whatever, please feel free to contact me, guys. Good luck to you. All right. Thanks a lot. What's that? Nice guy. Yeah, yeah. He was actually one of my former students. It was, it was. It was he's 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 obviously a little older than me. I'm not. I think, he might be. I'm not. What do you think? Forty, maybe. Maybe forty. But yeah, he's a good guy. Um, yeah, he's coaching here in Brunswick County. Uh, if you want more information, if you have any questions, you can definitely reach out to him. As far as your assignments go, I kind of just wrote it out in the reflection post, um, but I can go over it now if you're here. So basically for week nine, um, I have some different types of 
uh, ways to get you engaged in learning about the three energy systems. One is a coaching for climbing podcast, and I took a 17-minute chunk out of it. And you can look up the actual podcast. I originally created an hour-long podcast, but I didn't think everyone would listen to it. So I tried to find a condensed version of the three systems, what the three systems are, and about 15 minutes of podcast. So that's what that is right there. Uh, and then you have energy demands for sport. This is a, a document that you can use to kind of um, rate how much anaerobic or aerobic fitness a position, event, or function is in a sport. So for example, jumping would be anaerobic, would be high, aerobic would be low. So uh, long distance cardio, anaerobic would be low, aerobic would be high. So like if you wanted to, this would be a document you could use for your sport. You could also use that as a sheet to teach your future students or players. So that's kind of just a document that you can use in the future as a coach. And under that we have a PDF which goes in depth with energy and training. Okay. Um, it's going to talk a lot about uh, what's in the podcast. So you'll go over the anaerobic, <coughs> aerobic, aerobic, anaerobic mix system, and the anaerobic lactic, alactic system. So different systems if you've never heard them. Um, you'll learn about it in this module. And let's see, actually. And here's some just kind of extra resources if you want to learn more about energy system training. And then I think I have some video that you want to watch, some just extra resources. But really this three energy system video here is a podcast I took. When it comes to training. From system training. Uh, Eric Horst Training for Climbing podcast. If you want to look it up on iTunes or Spotify if you want to listen to the whole thing. Look for um, uh, energy system training and look for part one. And you've got part one, part two, part three, and part four. And if you want to really understand energy systems and how we use energy, those four podcasts will really kind of level you up as an educator, as a performance specialist. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say energy systems, as a phys ed teacher, coach, or teacher in health and fitness, that, that's an issue. You want to really know these three systems and know them well, and know how to train those systems because those systems of training are used in sport, okay? And he gives really good examples in this podcast. So you're gonna learn about the energy systems um, in the module and then you'll reflect on today's podcast. Make sure you use today's podcast in your uh, coaching notes. So your coaching notes portfolio will have, I think Rob Mendez is in there, we have Coach Jack Emanuel, we have Coach Nick Winkleman, now we have Coach... We Rob Mendez? Yes, yes. So the, the guy that was in the wheelchair... Yeah, so he'll be in your coaching notes as well. And then we have Coach Wainwright will be in there, that's four. And then I might have, I'll probably have one more guest speaker, maybe. If not, your fifth one will be someone from the class. So another, or it can be your personal podcast. So that would give you five, okay? So that's how you're gonna get your 10 points 
for your coaching notes portfolio the end of the semester. So you've already gotten, I think, three or four, okay? All right, that's gonna do it for today, everybody. We will see you all uh, next week.
Yeah. <laughs>